this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath social media and the smartphone have become an integral part of how we consume and process news and information but unlike traditional mass media where consumer technology has a role that is known and limited technological mediation in social media consumption is a black box its modalities are not always known nor are its operations transparent a lot of it comes down to trust and to what we are told by the owners of apps and tech companies as for the truth which can sometimes be unpleasant the only recourse seems to be old school investigative reporting but investigative reporting in the field of cutting edge technology is not easy and while it is high impact there are risks as well some of these themes come together in the recent tech fog expose by the news portal the wire as per the wire's investigative reports the bjp has access to a secret app called tech fog that can hijack social media apparently also automate hate and also is able to target thousands of accounts with just a click the story created a sensation while a trinamool mp has said tech fog i quote has serious ramifications and could jeopardize national security unquote a parliamentary panel headed by congress leader has sought a response from the home ministry so what exactly is tech fog how does it work and what does the wire expose mean in the context of investigative journalism that straddles the domains of technology privacy free speech and politics One person who has been tracking these developments closely is Samarth Bansal. Samarth is an independent journalist with a tech background whose pieces have appeared in leading publications in India and abroad including in the Hindu where we were colleagues for a while. He runs The Interval, a fortnightly newsletter that focuses on I quote the truth seeking process and forces that distort it unquote. And interestingly the latest edition of The Interval which went ra- viral was a detailed critique of the tech fog investigation samarth welcome to in focus and thank you so much for joining us thank you sampas for having me samarth so with so much of talk and discussion about the tech fog app and how it's such a frightening example of the way technology can be harnessed for mass propaganda and hate speech so you've written a detailed critique of the whole expose the reportage on it Can you please demystify this whole tech so tech phenomenon for the lay reader So the wire in its investigative reports has basically told us that the BJP has a app that is is like you know it automates trolling it's like a centralized platform that connects the distinctive parts of this machinery in like one centralized platform and it's not necessarily like one app it's like an ecosystem of apps that allows just one user to say for example tweet from thousands of accounts they can delete accounts whenever they want to leave like no trace behind and what they are saying is that the system is powerful enough to hijack say twitter trends and dominate the social media discourse they also tell us that this ecosystem of apps have a vast citizen database you know for targeted harassment so for example you'll have a group of say female reporters or a group of citizens based on religion something like that and the system is then connected with google sheets which has a lot of abusive tweets so you know you connect and link these process to ease this mass coordination 
of social media manipulation. That's what the big claim are coming out in the reports. I am personally, I found that the investigation had to be more rigorous. You know, we needed more proof. And I felt that there are a lot of assumptions and extrapolation in the way the stories were presented. And that is like my critique was journalistic uh, on the reporting process and editorial decisions. However, I want to add one point that one of the things that did strike me from their investigation was a point about a WhatsApp exploit that the reporters have found, which basically is telling us that like actually one of the wires reporters whose phone was infected with spyware, they claim that text messages were sent from WhatsApp even after the app was deleted from the phone. Now, how that happens, the reporters don't know. And it needs more uh, you know, coordination from the company to tell us like what exactly happened. But if this is true, this is, uh, this is a serious problem and it infringes on user privacy and even just in terms of scenarios of what this can do, it's dangerous. So that's in short what TechFog expose has told us and why I'm critical about it. Right. So you, you are uh, suggesting that the wire story may have some shortcomings in terms of uh, the robustness of the evidence for some of its claims. But uh, coming uh, to those claims, uh, let's set aside the journalistic aspect of it, which we'll come back to in a bit. But if you take those claims and sort of set them beside another aspect, which is the realm of technological possibility, or or the content of those claims possible? Are they feasible? And if they are, how worried should we be about it? For example, one of the things you said was automated trolling. I mean, the mind boggles at the very thought of it. I mean, trolling in itself uh, is something which is a very, very uh, highly debated and a very sensitive issue, especially for women. Now, when we are talking about automated trolling, what exactly are we talking about? And what about the other claims as well? If you could talk about those. Right, right. So, of course, like there's some claims that are again in like they're possible, right? I mean, generally speaking, I think the way to think about it is that good products, you know, they don't always need sophisticated technology. So you don't need to have something fancy to solve a problem. And good products essentially solve problems, right? I mean, this is a bit weird to say, but let's say if trolling is a use case for a political party or any group, and you have a product that makes that task easier to do, then that's a good product, right? So in that framework, where we don't need fancy technology to enable, say, a use case of trolling, it is possible. For example, is there a possibility that we can have a vast citizen database by categories? Yes, it is possible. We can connect that to Google Sheets. That is possible. Can we add a layer of automation? You know, for example, uh, let's think about a very simple use case. There is some ex-journalist or ex-activist, and whenever they tweet, and you have, say, a list of 100 abusive tweets that is stored in an Excel sheet. So can we create a system that as soon as someone, X person, puts out any tweet, which has, say, certain keyword, you know, say, name of a politician, and an automatic abusive tweet is triggered? Is that possible? Absolutely. That is not nothing sophisticated. So the point is that, you know, if you can do it at scale, then that becomes very worrying. And so that is what I would say, that a lot of these things are possible. I am. And I guess it may be happening at some level or the other, but at what scale it is happening and who is using it, we don't have clarity on that front. Okay, so let me rephrase what you've just said in a, in a, in a, in a sort of a frame that I, I have understood it. If, if I understand correctly, you're saying that if there are, let's say there are 10 women journalists, okay, who are, say, 
consistently critical of the regime the establishment and and some organization connected to the establishment decides that or maybe any organization for example which doesn't like those 10 journalists or 10 activists for example decides that every time they tweet anything at all there will be like a hundred responses which are all abusive and which will be targeted towards each of those 10 and if you have the if you have those those 10 individuals on a google sheet and another 100 abuses you know on a, on another google sheet you are saying basically this uh, abuses directed precisely towards each of these individuals can be automated is it what you're saying right i that's what i'm saying and let me just add some more context to it so the way to i mean what is automation basically it reduces our time and it increases the efficiency of any manual task right so a way to think about whether trolling can be automated or not or what it can do is basically you know just list down the steps needed for trolling like i mean like you just described right that you have a list of people you want to target what you want to tell them all of these kind of steps and uh, when say a tweet needs to be triggered so you list down these steps and at that point we have to figure out that like is there is there any step that requires human judgment right for example if if you can just basically create a list of rules so say one rule could be whenever x person tweets do something so that's that's an easy rule but if it's something more perceptive where you have you know there's an element of human judgment at that point automation becomes a little tricky it's not that it's not possible but it's tricky so i would break it down in that way for any problem in general and also for the case for trolling but i would say that the key question here is about like what kind of infrastructure can we create to enable this at large scale right so for example is it possible that one person can have access to thousands of accounts to you know start to be like thousands of accounts is managed by one person and that one person alone can target x journalist right so i'm i'm just trying to make that distinction that are 10 people you know using kind of these systems to put out 100 tweets to 100 journalists or can one person alone you know target like send 1000 tweets to you know the same number of people and i think that is the challenge and that's why i was talking about scale because here the question is not just about technology but it's also about what kind of detection systems the social media platform has to prevent such kind of automation and that's where the bad actors so to say their quote-unquote innovativeness comes into play like can they you know can they create an architecture that enables such mass scale manipulation so these are the nuances. But yes, what you're describing is a system. Theoretically, it's possible. So what, what you just mentioned about scale. So given what we know of the architecture of uh, Twitter, for example, is it possible for one person to have uh, to manage a thousand accounts sending abusive tweets to 100 journalists? Can one is, is it does Twitter have a set of whatever they do, you know, to set up an account on identity, identity checks, etc. Is it robust enough to prevent one person handling thousand accounts or hijacking thousand accounts or it's it's possible? I mean, honestly, I am not entirely sure about that aspect simply because I think it also matters how someone is managing it. Just think about it, right? And which is where actually like a use case, like, you know, the tech fog operators matters. Right? Have you created a system that enables one? Like I can't have one thousand accounts on my phone right away, right? So is there a system that has created? Yeah, I'm just trying to think through it. That 
it's a, it's a tricky bit because first of all like how do you get that many accounts that many emails and even if one person can do it can like 100 people do it so these are questions that i have but i am not entirely sure about the capabilities of say twitter to prevent it and also like what kind of architecture could be built it so yeah i would just say i'm not entirely sure about the scale aspect of this problem right and another element that you referred to oh, when you were responding earlier was the level or or the stage at which human intervention or human oversight might be necessary where it's where pure automation is not going to be enough and i was just going to ask you uh, speak you said also that technological sophistication uh, is not ne- always necessary you can have a simple level of technology to do all this so if we move from automation to human directed kind of trolling and and if we if we take the technological tool that might enable it we come to artificial intelligence right which is a substitute for uh, human intelligence in this uh, context so do you think it's likely or is it happening anywhere that artificial intelligence or ai is used as an effective tool for hate speech and propaganda so i'll just tell you the framework that i take to think about this problem so i make a distinction between two different problem statements one is that creation of fake stories right and using ai to do that and the second one is that which i think is a bigger problem that bad information is being produced at such a large scale and it is spreading very quickly for the goal of persuasion so i would like to talk about these two problems separately so let's talk about the first one fake stories being created now we have ai that can generate fake content for example uh, you would have heard about deep fakes right which is basically you use artificial intelligence to fake events like like you could have a politician who is shown to utter words that that person is actually not saying you know you can find interesting videos that people have created to demonstrate these possibilities and technology to create this is now cheap easily accessible so you can do it but the point is that and this is my view you don't actually need ai to create fake content in my own reporting on uh, misinformation i have seen that a lot of just what we call fake news is is information taken out of context to portray a misleading picture right and lot of this misleading information that is created are ideas that are prevalent in society and we want to reinforce it by you know flooding the public sphere with content that like people already believe it but you know you want to reinforce it and make it sound more believable so that's where i see that even though ai can create fake content in at least in my framework its utility is not that high but where again i start getting concerned is that when you have social media platforms which works on network effects where if one person shares something another person likes it and it just spreads through that ecosystem right and we are talking about targeted messaging where you know based on data that we have the algorithms that show content to certain people as that system of targeting improves and you know we'll have like more clinical with more clinical precision content can go to different people that's when you know i think things start getting a little worried so i am more concerned about ai in terms of uh, distribution at scale however i would i would also just like to point out that we also need more evidence to understand whether the effectiveness of this targeted messaging right because even generally even if you think about digital advertising and targeted ads there are studies that are coming up that is telling us now that 
you know, its impact is kind of overstated, right? But I would still, I mean, that is a space where we can debate what works, what doesn't work. But all I'm trying to say is that AI for creating fake content is less, at least from my perspective, of an issue compared to AI for distribution and targeted messaging. Right. So what you're suggesting is that when it comes to fake news, the actual effectiveness of fake news in influencing opinions or in changing national narratives or in changing the public mood, it might be overstated. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I can tell you that my own thinking on this has evolved a lot over the last, say, five years since I started thinking about this problem. And let me just, like, I can give an example. So, you know, like, a lot of this public debate began after the 2016 American election, right? At that time, there was a, you know, flurry of academic research, newspaper articles telling us that, you know, Trump won 2016, partly because of the fake news crisis. And after that, you know, that was 2016. In the years that followed, a lot of academic research came out. That was basically telling us that, you know, a lot of these initial conclusions that we reached were wildly exaggerated. So one of my favorite uh, piece of research has is, is been done by political scientist Brendan Nyhan. And uh, he, you know, the research he has done, uh, he has said that, you know, for example, they studied like how many people consumed fake news content during, say, the 2016 campaign. And it turned out that it's a very small number. And even that consumption was concentrated among people who are like very you know, highly partisan, right? And so it's, you know, when you're actually thinking about, say, the impact of, let's just talk about impact of fake news in elections. They, it's not a linear thing that just an exposure or the creation of fake news is has like direct impact on electoral politics, right? You need to think about A, how many people actually saw that material, then B, whether people who are seeing it, are they persuadable, you know, do they change their minds? Third, what is the proportion of news or information that is bogus, right? Is it 1%? Is it 50%? Is it 90%? So I'm saying that it's 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 a it's slightly complicated model rather than, you know, just because fake news has been created and we are seeing it doesn't mean it has direct impact on our discourse and democracy. And last thing I also want to point out, and this is a topic I'm still thinking about, is this, that there's new evidence in subjects like cognitive psychology. For example, I have seen the work of Hugo Mercier. He's, a, he's an academic. And he he's claiming that if you just think about how humans think and the psychology of you know who we believe, what information we trust, this narrative of widespread gullibility, right? That there is this credulous public that is easily persuadable by mass propaganda campaigns. He's contesting that this whole paradigm is misleading it's wrong so i would just exert caution again here that and i say this because my own thinking on this has evolved so we should be just a bit more careful that again i don't want to say that misinformation is inconsequential far from it i'm mainly highlighting that we still don't have a good model to proportionally understand how grave the social media driven fake news crisis is for electoral politics or for our polity and the limited evidence that we have from the United States at least doesn't support the apocalyptic predictions. So we just need to think more rigorously about this. And I think we should not settle for easy answers. 
Right, right. This is this is an interesting debate because um, on the one hand, uh, when we have these trends in different places of uh, attempts to criminalize sharing fake news, and especially during the pandemic, we've said we've seen how if some some kind of information is shared on social media, and it is not in alignment with the official uh, facts or data or figures or policy, uh, there are tendencies to criminalize it and you know send that person to jail or file a case against them or whatever. And on the other hand, we also find that regardless of how precisely we are able to measure the impact of fake news, we do find there is a huge amount of, I don't know, a lot of people who do believe fake things. I mean, they do believe narratives which are not true, which are patently false. So where did their conviction in these false narratives come from? And if they do not come from social media, where else have they been consuming it from? So. I think this is an interesting subject. We should uh, probably look at it in detail at a later stage. Now, moving beyond fake news, another aspect of uh, technological abuse uh, in the context of politics, in the context of democracy, is the deployment of certain tools for manipulating Twitter trends. And, and the tech fog story also refers to this. So what's fake when, when somebody is faking Twitter trends is not the content, but what's fake is the chatter around the content. So how serious, according to you, is this capability today? And do you think there is a monopoly over it? Or is this power restricted to a few hands? You're talking about um, Twitter trends manipulation and the kind of showing something that's not as popular as more popular. Is that the context? Yeah, yeah. When something which might be just uh, have enjoyed the support of 500 people, I mean, if you're able to manipulate Twitter trends, you can give away, uh, you can sort of send the message uh, to a million people, you know, that it's popular among 10 million people, which is false, you know. No, so I think at least I have a very clear model in my head about this, that Twitter does not represent reality and it's not a sign of public opinion at all. And also the fact that Twitter, trend, Twitter trends are fake is like really old news. We it's it's almost you can say by design twitter trends are prone to manipulation right so once you take that approach anything whoever is doing whatever on twitter trends i don't take them seriously and then you know but again i would i would like to add an argument here that see again when we think about twitter a lot of people say that it's a very small proportion of indians that hang out at twitter right but still twitter matters because political elites consume a very high quantity of political media on Twitter, right? So if if this section of people, let's say there are just 2% of India, I don't remember the exact figures of Twitter usage in India, but let's say 2%, even 2%. And if this 2% is effective, is has influence in decision-making or in the media, and they are taking cues from Twitter, and they start believing that what they're seeing on Twitter, on their timelines, on the trends, that matters, then that starts influencing politics or media coverage. And if that influences media coverage, then that flows to the section that is not even on Twitter, right? So I'm trying to sketch out that what happens on Twitter matters, but fundamentally we know that Twitter trends are fake. So it largely depends on like the way people who use Twitter, how are they thinking about what they're consuming? And if it turns out that people actually believe that these trends uh, reflect something then of course i think it, it's a problem because it does not and even if it does not need like say mass manipulation even then the twitter trends are meaningless 
And in terms of whether someone has domination on it or not, I think, see, the game is very simple. The more resources you put into it, you can turn the reality to your side. So that's the game. Now, you could be a like a production studio who is promoting a Bollywood movie. You could be a political party. It's just that the ends of what happens with these campaigns uh, matter. You know, like just promoting a product or a movie, that's, you know, that's like banal. But when you're talking about political ideas or, you know, spreading hate speech through these trends, then it has serious repercussions. So, yeah, I think it's just more of the more people who use Twitter, they need to be more aware that these trends don't really mean anything and are so easily prone to manipulation. And also, Sampath, I'll add one point here, which I am personally very concerned about that forget all of this Twitter manipulation. You know, even like our public sphere right now is flooded with a lot of these bullshit opinion polls. I mean, not, I mean, I'm a, I'm not saying all, all opinion polls are bad. I'm a big fan of surveys and opinion polling. But generally, if you sketch the landscape, a lot of opinion polling is really bad. And, you know, when information like this starts coming out that 95% people support X policy, right? And newspapers or TV channels cover that and that becomes the headline. You know, that is a problem because, you know, we say that, you know, we have data to show that, you know, 90% people believe so and so should happen with farmers. But if the data is bad, you know, we are creating this misleading reality. So I'm saying that when it comes to, again, I come, I keep repeating my point that sometimes to flood the public sphere with narratives that are misleading, you don't need tech at all. Just this bad surveys, bad data can do more, can do more harm than we generally imagine. Right. I mean, you, you made a couple of in, interesting, but somewhat, what should I say, a mutually antagonistic kind of points about Twitter. One is, you, on the one hand, you have uh, correctly said, perhaps, that Twitter trends are almost necessarily fake. And at the same time, you have also said that because political elites uh, hang out on Twitter and uh, they they have the tendency to influence a lot of uh, public discourse, including government policies, even if they are riding on what is fake, they can make an impact on, 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 on actual uh, reality because uh, we do see that media houses uh, take uh, stories based on Twitter trends. In fact, Twitter trends themselves can become a story. And once uh, these trends uh, make their impact on uh, non-social media, that is mass media, mainstream media, then that, of course, sets off its own chain of uh, events, uh, which are real and not fake. Absolutely. And I think that's where, if you think about Twitter as a source of information, right? And people who are responsible to do something with that information. So the people, there, which is like, it could be you and me, it could be a politician, a decision maker, a journalist, anyone. Like they need to understand, and which, it's, which I can almost say is a fact that Twitter does not represent reality. But if we, you know, don't believe or don't account for that, or say if we start seeing things or we become totally objective that, you know, no, 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 whatever Twitter is saying, it matters. And, you know, we should take that cue to inform, you know, whatever else we do. I think it's, that's a place of very reasoned judgment that, you know, you need, if you just take Twitter as a source of truth, obviously, you know, it will not have good impact. But on the other hand, I'm, I think it's important to illustrate we have seen big movements, social movements erupt from social media, right? So we can also not say like totally discounted. So I would say that it's more of a matter of human judgment on how we decide to use social media, especially Twitter, as a source of information. And that is where 
all of these things you know ultimately fall upon uh, how we use that information and what we do with it right we are running out of time so one final question before we wind up and uh, this is on a subject on which you have written extensively so how important uh, is investigative tech journalism in the indian context today and according to you what are the main challenges for someone who wants to do or wants to produce top notch uh, investigative tech journalism i'm asking you this because you have done a lot of your work in this domain so i would like to hear your thoughts on this so obviously it is very important especially because technology is changing very fast and we need to understand what is happening how it is happening who is enabling it and because it's technology right it's such a complex machinery as people who are not building technology we are just playing catch up right we don't really know uh, people who are making this decisions what are they doing how are they doing it so it's it's like a no brainer that doing investigative technology journalism is absolutely important the challenge here is basically you need to bring together different skill sets to enable this right you need tools to investigate the cyberspace and you also need the skills of a reporter to unearth information that can't just be you know you can't just get from technology like digital tools because ultimately there are people who are making these decisions to deploy certain technology right so you also need that part of it you need to understand the economics of why this is happening you need to understand the politics of it so it's a very interdisciplinary so to say space to do journalism and after doing all of this you know your research you know putting together evidence in journalism you need to produce a story that meets the bar of a journalistic truth right so which is why you will see that this is complicated and important and i think the way to do it whoever wants to do it is to do more collaborations i think we need more collaborations between people who are skilled with technical tools and no cyber forensics and understand technology that's the most important part and reporters you know who can do all the journalistic work needed to place the technical findings in a context and tell a story and for that we need like resources newsrooms need to invest resources and also interest to understand that you know these are not easy stories to crack but if we spend enough time and resources it can be illuminating for us to understand what is happening right we need uh, definitely more collaboration ideally between people who are sort of comfortable in the domain of technology and someone who's more grounded in journalistic traditions and yes we do need uh, more resources uh, to be invested in this particular kind of journalism thank you so much samarth for sharing your thoughts and insights on this very important dimension of the media landscape today thank you so much for joining us thank you sampad it was a pleasure in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon